This episode of the Ty Capital Millionaire Podcast is brought to you by Black America Inc., a trillion dollar nation, by A.R. Morton. Black America Inc. is a piece of literature that details and illustrates the socioeconomic solutions that black Americans can implement in their communities today. Whether it be being captains of our own industries, creating our own political parties, or just learning how to strengthen our overall health and wealth, Black America Inc. is what black Americans and Americans in general need to get to the next level in 2017 and beyond. For too many years, we have been talking about the problems and not the solutions. For too many years, we have been pointing fingers at each other without talking about the solutions. This is why Black America Inc. is important. If you're ready to build yourself up and rebuild your community, head on over to Amazon.com and order your copy of Black America Inc., a trillion dollar nation. My name is Andre C. Hatchett, a.k.a. Mr. Own or Be Owned, and I'm encouraging everybody listening to this podcast to pick up my new book, Own or Be Owned, The Black Man's Guide to Wealth Creation in America on Amazon.com. If you're a black man, if you need guidance, inspiration, a path, a path to follow, to build wealth in this country, pick it up. Own or Be Owned, The Black Man's Guide to Wealth Creation in America. Welcome to the Ty Capital Millionaire Podcast with your host, Charles Oglesby III, a.k.a. Todd Millionaire. This is the Ty Capital Millionaire Podcast. This is episode number 52. My name is Charles Oglesby, also known as Todd Millionaire, founder and the director of the uh, Ty Capital Investment Club that has over 185 members on the stock side, about 25 to 30 on the real estate side. We're doing some great things. We're turning small into a lot and I'm very excited about everything that we've done and everything we're going to do. So if you haven't joined, you should join. We want you a part of our team and our family. Also the founder of Tide Acquisitions, we are under contract for property number two. It's a great experience, a great learning experience for people who are involved doing it. Not only are they making money, but they're learning at the same time. They can take those skills, apply them to other things. Uh, also in the process of Todd Ventures, which is super exciting. So many people are contacting us with their ideas. Um, there's so much creativity out there. We want to fund those ideas and we're getting there. Um, so keep pitching us and we'll keep having that conversation. Thank you all for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to share the stories of successful African-American investors and business owners so that people can hear the stories of successful examples, see what's possible and learn that business and investing are the true keys to financial success and generational wealth. With us today, we have the Ivy investor, her Actual name is Courtney Richardson. She is a JD LLM past financial advisor. Um, her story is a lot like mine, which is why when I heard her spitting her truth, I was like, oh, she's one of me. I know she can give herself a much better introduction. So with that, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Charles. So just to kind of give a brief background about my background, about my story, um, I, <laughs> I started in financial services in 2003 with a philosophy degree, a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy. Uh, my intention was to go straight to law school because that's kind of what I've wanted to do all my entire life. Since I was five years old, that was the conversation that I had. People were like, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, I had friends that would say, I'm a police officer, I would be a fireman or whatever. And I'm like, I would be an attorney. And they're like, where did you get this kid? <laughs> um, so, um, so I, you know, my intent, you know, with the philosophy uh, degree was to go to law school. And I was kind of like burnt out from like school. Um, Pitts, I went to New York to Pittsburgh. Pitts program is like uh, vacillates between one and two between Stanford, like in terms of the top philosophy programs in the nation. So it was a really intense program. Um, and I learned a lot, but I was like, is that really what I want to do? I don't know. So I took some quote, unquote time off. Um, 
And I, of course, when you're graduating and you need a job, it's like, I'll take anything because I have a degree in philosophy. Um, I was approached by American Express Financial Advisors, which is now Ameriprise, if you're familiar with them. And they said, hey, do you want to be a financial advisor? And I'm like, oh, I have your other offer, so why not? <laughs> um, so I um, became a financial I was licensed as a general securities representative, which is a stockbroker, and I had a, um, which is a Series 7, and then I had a Series 66, which is a, um, it's basically the laws of regarding securities, which allows me to be an investment advisor, which also allows me to charge people for my advice. So I did that. Um, I had the opportunity to work in banking. Um, I even worked with PNC. I went to the National City, which is now PNC, and I also worked with Merrill Lynch. So at Merrill, I did... Um, retirement work um, and then I also did high net worth advising um, with subway managed accounts um, and I was working the day the stock market crashed so um, it makes (laughs) so what happened with that is that I was laid off um, and you know the market crashed in September of 08 and it was just a really really crazy time and I was looking to go to law school at that point anyway because every time we were having these conversations um, with high net worth clients when we were having conversations with trust we always had to run everything through legal and it was like that's great that's a great idea you guys have but let's run it through legal and it was like everything was kind of run by legal in these high net worth spaces I was like well wait a second I want to get down with them I want to be like them so that's kind of really what reignited my desire to go to law school so I was kind of already prepared for the LSAT I was doing that when I was laid off in March of 2009 I was like okay well this makes sense I'm gonna go I was gonna go part-time I was like I'm gonna go full-time um, decided to go well. So I spent um, a month in the Philippines, I guess, to get myself together. I don't know. <laughs> came back. I started law school in August 09. Graduated in May of 2012. And the market, the stock, as the stock market crashing in 08 kind of affected everything. So when I got um, kind of into the law arena, it wasn't as sweet as it used to be. So I was like, what am I going to do? Um, but I found oil and gas. I liked oil and gas. It was kind of like property on steroids. I'm very familiar with property because, again, when, when you start learning the rules of money, you start learning what kind of rules money, which is property and uh, taxes. It's pretty much which rules money. So I was kind of like, okay, well, I understand property because I have this kind of background in finance. So I was like, okay, I'll do I'll do this. And I started learning oil and gas. I was like, this is dope. And then I said, I want to be in West Virginia. I want to be closer home with Billy. And I really want to get into this tax thing. So I started ILM in uh, 2014, um, left the firm, started in 2014, and I just finished up this past August. So it took me about about three years to finish um, the LLM, which is kind of like, it's LLM taxation with a certificate of state planning. So it's kind of like, um, it's law school and steroids. It's super concentrated in tax. I know all the fun things about tax. And everything that I learned pretty much is out the door now with this new tax code. Um, mm-hmm. There's some things that are still the same, but a lot of things have changed significantly, especially the things that I studied, such as corporate law, estate planning, estate law, um, because a lot of things run by exemptions. And now that these exemptions have changed, you're like, whoa, 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 this whole ch- this changes the whole plan, this changes the whole game. Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of like, like the Wild Wild West now, because now no one knows what's going on. They have this new code, this new law. Um, or the way we call it out in the field, we say basically you have 500 pages of code changes, not necessarily. So it's, it's, it's an interesting place because we're waiting for regs and we haven't gotten to yet. So everybody's kind of pontificating and, and thinking we know what direction the regs are going to go. So that's where we are and that's where I am now. Um, 
I'm a government attorney by day and I focus on the IB investor at night. I've been doing that since 14. In terms about just educating people about investing and finances and kind of making thing, every, everything very plain and very simple. Because one of the things that I learned at Merrill is that a lot of the things that rich people do or wealthy people do that we look at, we're like, oh, they're wealthy. I could never do that. No, you can do those things just at a smaller scale, but you have to understand the rules of the game. You have to play it better than anyone else. And I think that was pretty much how I started. That's what I thought about when I started the IB Investor. How can I educate people for them to make good, intelligent financial decisions? Because it's not something that a lot of people talk about across the table, but it's something that you really need to know. Very, very cool. It's funny because, um, like I said, my story is a little bit similar um, in that I was a financial advisor before I went to law school. Um, and what's interesting is when I was working in financial advising, what I noticed is a lot of the advisors kind of wanted to be lawyers in that the way they carried themselves, the way they presented themselves, they kind of like, they carried themselves as though they were on the level of as an attorney. And maybe they are, some were doing very, very well. And so I was thinking like, instead of trying to look like an attorney or act like an attorney, why don't I just become an attorney? One day I was walking out the office and there was uh, this law firm on top of the firm that I was working at. I was working at Waddell and Reed at one point in time. And it was an African attorney. And so I stopped him. I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about going to law school. What do you think? And he said, if you're thinking about law school, go to law school. And then after you're done, you'll be thankful that you went. And I think that's kind of what pushed me over the edge was just having somebody say like, if you're thinking about it, just do it. So um, that was pretty cool. But what I really want to circle back, because I think there's probably a ton of value in your experience when you're still working as an investment advisor and as you're working for all those different firms. And I kind of want to ask, um, what lessons did you learn while you were working as an investment advisor and seeing different things at Merrill Lynch and at different firms? There's always going to be another opportunity. Um, I think that was pretty much the biggest thing that I got out of being in those spaces is that I think when you look at things and I'll, I'll, I'll get a little philosophical for a second, but when you look at things, think that if I don't take this opportunity, it will be, there'll never be another opportunity. But when you look at things through the abundance mindset, you're kind of like, there's, there's going to be something else. And when you're in these spaces all the time, like everybody's always concerned, like, well, if the market goes down, I'm going to lose money. And you're like, if the market goes up, I'm going to make money. It's like, oh, not necessarily. You know, you can make money if the market is up, down or sideways, if you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by there's always going to be an opportunity. Like it's, the opportunity is not always to be this kind of bright, shiny thing, but there's always something to do. And there's always a way to make money if you're willing to do the work. Um, so that was pretty much what I got from it, that, yeah, there's always going to be an opportunity. You know, you don't, and if an uh, opportunity doesn't seem right for you, there's going to be something else that's going to be right for you. Nice. So that's kind of what I, my biggest, my biggest takeaway. My second takeaway is um, do it afraid. I mean, there's a lot of times that, you know, I was just thrust into a project and I really had no idea what was going on and I had to get up to speed. And I was fortunate to work at Merrill and Merrill had just a plethora of information that's at our fingertips for us to kind of get up to speed on any financial product or any financial issue that was out there. Um, and I got a chance to take lead on the auction rate security right before the market crashed. It was pretty much the, the indicator that the market was going to crash. Hmm. And I got a chance to really work on that project. And I had no idea before then. I mean, you learn about when you study for the Series 7 and you hear about this paper, you hear about seven-day paper, 30-day paper, you hear about this paper. Um, 
and that's pretty much all you know about when you're studying for the seven. And I had to learn like the intricacies of this paper because what happened is advisors were using that um, space, they were using the paper as same as cash. So paper is basically a, we'll call it a short-term note that resets at, a, at the end of the interval. So if it's seven day paper, then at the end of the week it resets or it less it's available, it's on the market. So people are buying and selling it at the end of the seven days. Um, well, what happens is normally that if there's not enough buyers and sellers on the private side, a big institution like a JP Morgan, a Merrill Lynch, a Chase, uh, a Citibank will jump in, basically clear the market, make everyone liquid. What happened in February 2008, the market failed. And a lot of advisors were putting people in paper instead of going straight to a money market because people were getting better returns. But at that point, kind of like the bottom fell out when the people weren't able to use their cash. And if they needed to get that cash at that time, they were getting about 70 cents on the dollar. So on your cash allocation that you think is quote, quote, safe, you're losing 30% off top. So I had to learn all of the things that went into this paper, how the paper was set up, how we did it, how the auction works, why the auction failed, has this happened before, what's the, and there's basically a fail rate. And so again, so if you were getting, I don't know, I'm just going to exaggerate and say, if you're getting 5% on this paper and then it fails, your fail rate may go up to 12%. So if you don't need that money, you're making money hand over fist. But if you do, now you have a problem. But again, there's always that opportunity. There's always an opportunity to make money. Um, so just learning about that and learning about it on the fly to be able to be fluent and conversant in a way that mattered to the financial advisors that I supported to really kind of get us out of this jam. It was a great experience, but had I said, I don't know what auction rate securities are, I don't really understand them, give it to somebody else, I wouldn't have gotten that experience. Mm -hmm. And that experience really helped me kind of mold me into a better professional. Yeah. Absolutely. It's funny because, um, that's it. <laughs> I was on Twitter like 30 minutes ago and I just went in this whole huge rant about like just doing things afraid. And I was saying like, man, I wish I knew that when I was like 18, 19 in high school, mm -hmm. like, I wish I knew that the fear never really goes away. You just got to do it afraid. And then as you're doing it, then once you realize, I guess, that you're not going to die, then the fear goes away. And then the next time you do it, it's okay. Um. Mm -hmm. And I mean, a lot of times you'll stay on the sidelines hoping that you get enough education or enough experience that the fear goes away and you'll just waste years sitting there waiting, trying to get more experience or read more books or listen to more podcasts. And you can learn through doing what you would never learn by just reading. And I'm an advocate of reading. I read a ton of books, but I know that there's still limits on reading and knowledge through reading. So that's very cool. That's definitely something I, I operate under. Oh, and you know what? I think the more educated you become, the more fear, you know, the more risk averse you become, too. At, le at least I've seen that. I'm like, oh, I know, you know, well, I've kind of, log you know, kind of run through the logic table in my head. And there's a probability that this is not going to work. And then some people are just like, well, I don't know. I'm just going to do it. And you look at these people and they're like, wow, this person's super successful. And you're like, I have all of these degrees, all of these papers. I don't know if you've heard of Kanye's uh, college dropout, <laughs> the first one. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to like lay under all of my degrees. And I got, and I, I kind of laughed at it, but I was like, that's pretty much what happens is that you become so, you know, so educated, you become like risk averse. It's not that they don't have any fear, but they just kind of just like, I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And you get that kind of like free, like freeness about it. And they're just successful because you just, 
sometimes you fail and you fail fast. You just keep doing something until it sticks. It's so funny. I always tell my mom this. I always tell her, like, sometimes we can be a little bit too smart for our own good. Mm-hmm. And we miss out on opportunities because we know all the ways that it can and can't work. And so we'll just stay where it's safe, where we know things are going to work out instead of launching out into the abyss of cryptocurrencies. <laughs> where we don't know, like, in our actuality, like, we don't know. It could work out, it could not work out, but you're somebody who has so much experience and knowledge in how other situations work, how other markets work, then you're gonna be able, you're gonna miss up on that opportunity. So you're 100% right, because you went in on me on that post. We'll talk about that post, hopefully, if I remember. But um, and I think this actually might be a time to dovetail into that, because I was going to ask you, um, since there's opportunities in every market, what opportunities do you see in this market? A couple of things. So on the on the very high level, um, so the tax code changed the graded corporate tax scale to a flat rate. And why that matters is that essentially, um, I don't remember where it was at this. Like, so it was between zero and fifty thousand of profit was taxed at one level, and we'll say it's under twenty percent. We'll say fifteen because I just don't remember offhand. But then, then you had this um, fifty to I think. I don't know, it was 50 to more, 50,000 up with something else. And then at $10 million, you had the top corporate rate, which was 35%. And that's what a lot of our big companies, a lot of our our big companies do. A lot of our big companies like our Apple, our Microsoft, they're already at that $10 million profit. And we're getting taxed at 35%. So they're already automatically going to get a hit to their balance sheet because, um, or I'm going to say get a pump of, of cash to their balance sheet because they're dropping their the corporate tax rate on that money from 35% to 21%. So that's automatically just going to be a flush of cash. And a lot of people are saying, oh, they're going to put more jobs out there. And I, eh, the jobs really aren't going to be there, at least not right off top. We'll just say right now. But what is going to be there is going to be those profits, and they are going to push those out to investors. So the dividends, I'm expecting dividend checks. I say give you all that background. I'm expecting dividends to increase. Um, and it's not the first quarter. I would probably say second quarter 2018. So a lot of our big dividend players, yeah, I'm expecting a lot from them. Um, so that's kind of where I'm looking at. So I'm looking at uh, like dividend stocks. I think they're going to be doing a lot. Um, also, I, I think mm, I think cryptocurrency is a, is an opportunity, and I think it's an opportunity for for us to kind of do things afraid. Um, I think this is a really good speculative um, opportunity. Like when our parents were investing, like they were speculating in pork bellies and oil, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like our generation, our generation speculation. Now, do I think that everybody should go out and buy crypto? Probably not. One, I think um, currency just generally should not be a super, a really large portion of your portfolio. I say usually five to 10% at most. But I do think that one thing, even if crypto went away tomorrow, I think there's a real value in the blockchain and that technology that kind of runs the crypto bust, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an opportunity in that. There's a couple of ETFs that are floating around. There's uh, two blockchain ETFs that kind of hit the market relatively recently. And then there's also, there's a Bitcoin um, ETF. And then there's going to be Ethereum e- ETF, I believe, rolling out this spring. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a, a couple of different opportunities in that crypto space that's not necessarily, um, you know, you going out and buying cryptocurrency, like buying coins. Like the, um, So that's... Um, so that's a really good opportunity. Um, also, 
I just think it's a really, I think there's going to be some really good spaces in real estate also. So I, I don't want to just focus on the, the stock market. I think there's going to be some really good spaces in real estate because as corp companies and corporations get more money, they're going to look to do some building. They're going to be looking to do some infrastructure. And I think this is something that people are like, as Amazon is looking for its next headquarters, I think wherever that space actually is in the nation i mean there's i think there on a, there's a short list that includes philadelphia and pittsburgh um but to that to the i think wherever those spots are it's like there's going to be a real estate boom there so i think there's a couple of different places where we can kind of hang our hat on being an opportunity and i again um i i think at some point we're going to start playing with the interest rates i think uh the Federal Reserve Bank is going to try to, once all this money starts circulating from the corporation side, and I don't believe it trickles down economic works. I'm just giving you that there's going to be some money floating around. Um, not necessarily anything that I think is going to be in excess, but I think the Fed is going to kind of try to pull back um, and increase the interest rates. Um, so I think that may happen. So I think we may want to start looking at the bond space because I think we've stopped looking at bonds because bonds have stopped. Bonds have been sexy years, yeah. but I think they've become less sexy because their their yield are just so terrible. But now I think they're going to start increasing. Um, they were okay around, I would say maybe 08, 09 when the when the market was trying to rebound. I think we may see some of that coming um, in the next couple of months. Absolutely, I agree. I think there's a ton of opportunity out there, just as long as you're looking at it the right way. Um, I'm mm-hmm. super bullish on American business. I think that it has probably never been a better time to start your own business. And I'm seeing a ton of that just amongst African-American entrepreneurs, which I love seeing. Um, Not only are we starting our own businesses, but we're supporting each other's businesses. So that's very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are some, because a lot of young professionals are making good money, um, but I don't know if they're really planning for their taxes the best way to make sure that they're paying the least amount taking advantage of exemptions and all that good stuff. So what are some, what's some advice you would give for a young professional out there making good money? um, Not a lot of like no dependents. um, Mm -hmm. How can you help those people? Well, I think the biggest thing is reducing your taxable income. And the question is, well, how do I reduce my taxable income? And, And the best way to do that, especially where we are now is start contributing to the retirement account. A lot of people do not contribute to the retirement accounts and they're not even contributing. Um, some so there's a couple of things. We, there's you can max out people talk about retirement. And there's two max out terms. So you can max out your employer's match, which basically means that you're contributing uh, enough to get the entire employer match. But then on top of that, it's actually maxing out your your yearly contribution, which I believe in 2018 is like 18500 And a lot of people are making good money. And it's, with a little bit of kind of like trimming back, you can actually max out. Um, a lot of people can. I have a lot of friends that are able to max out their retirement. And I tell them, you're getting beat over the head in taxes. You just really are. There's not enough mortgage, mortgage interest in the world that's going to make this worthwhile. So you have to do something that's going to give you a benefit now and something that's going to give you a benefit later. And one of the things that, and one of the top things that gives you a benefit now and a benefit later is um, tax deferred retirement accounts. So you're taking money off your taxable income and putting it into an account. And then on top of that is that that money will be available and it's growing tax deferred all the time, um, you know, until you retire. 
and it comes out, you know, you, it's taxable when it comes out, but you can actually measure the, your taxes as you, as you take it out. A lot of people think, oh, I have $100,000 in this IRA when I retire, I'm going to get taxed at $100,000. No, not if you don't take it out. If you take out a little bit, you only get taxed on the amount that you take out, the only the amount that you use. So it's kind of like one maxing out that retirement. Um, also looking into property, um, I think property is when I say initially looking into your first property, looking your, into your home. Now, your home is not an investment, but it does help you kind of tax-wise. You, I mean, they have reduced the state and local deduction um, to $10,000. However, um, but a lot of places, and a lot of places, at least in Philadelphia, unless your property is like, I, I'm thinking like a, mm, about $750,000, you're not going to get anything close to that $10,000. That's where you're starting to get into the gray area of you know, not being able to claim all your state and local taxes. But for the most part, in most places, other than New York and California, you're able to kind of deduct your top three taxes on your, on your, um, on your taxes. But then also you have the opportunity of uh, deducting your mortgage interest. So those are kind of getting those houses is that, okay, I want place to live uh, once I pay it off. Basically, it can't be taken from me unless I, you know, default on my uh, real estate taxes or something. Um, but that gives you a place to live. But it's also giving you that kind of bounce, that benefit now of the deductions. But then also you have a benefit later in terms of having a home that's completely paid off. So, you know, retirement, getting into a home. Um, also, I, in terms of tax planning generally, I think you talked about it earlier about getting in front of it. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm... When you go to do your taxes in March, April, or whenever you do them, your amount that you're getting back should not be a surprise. Like, we should be like, oh, look at that. I got XYZ back this year. Woohoo. This is a surprise to me. Like, no, 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 no. That means you're not doing it right. <laughs> so you have to say, hey, you know, am I, you might, I, I personally like a little bit of a refund. And I mean, and there's some things that I just can't necessarily, like, I don't know what my business expenses are going to be because I do have an LLC. Um, there are certain things that I can't really manage for. Um, so sometimes, and then sometimes I also have to pay business taxes. So there's a lot going on with me personally, but I try to at least get on top of things and say, okay, um, because if you have a business, you probably should be paying your quarterly um, taxes. So that's something else that you probably should be looking into. So again, that's a reason, like if you're, everybody's kind of running to open up businesses, you have to be compliant because there's nothing worse than getting a surprise tax bill or a surprise audit letter in the mail. That's not fun. So you want to understand like, okay, I had XYZ coming in from my, we'll call it my W-2, my job, my, my regular nine to five. I have this W-2. I may do some side work, so I may get a 1099. Um, I also have, I mean, so that's so some of the things that you can control, your the work that you do, the, the nine to five, the, um, we'll say the consulting, the kind of like off the cuff work that gets you a 1099. You can control that. Um, a lot of people with Uber and Lyft, they get those 1099s and they're going to, a lot of people I know that picked up Uber and Lyft are going to be super surprised in a couple, in a couple of weeks when they get this 1099, they're like, oh, I didn't pay any taxes on this. They're going to be sad. So again, <laughs> you want to make sure that you, you know, the things that you can control, you're making sure that you're paying your what's due and what's owed. Because a lot, again, I don't want to pay more than, like, it's kind of like if you go to the store. Like, oh, if I go to the store, I'm going to give them more than, would you really go to a merchant and give them more than they're entitled? Of course not. Same thing with the IRS. I'm not giving you more than you're entitled. So I need to plan on the front end to make sure that we're even feeding at the end of the year.
Yeah. And the only way that you could do that, and the best way to do that, is to do that now in January. Yeah. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna plan, and I'm gonna plan, uh, I'm gonna plan. You know, I don't know. We'll do it in September. Well, you lost, you know, three fourths of the year, and and you're not able to like really recoup that. And especially if you're going to max out a 401k, you need to start. Mat- you need to calculate how much you need to contribute every paycheck to get you to the end of the year. And a lot of people don't do that. And a lot of people are like, oh, I can max out. And they try to dump a lot of money as much as they can in your 401k. But a lot of 401ks have rules about how much you can contribute, you know, kind of in terms of a percentage. So you end up jamming yourself up. Again, you have to know the rules of the game and play it better than anybody else. So you manage your your income that you have coming in. And there's other things that you can't manage, like your investments. If you get dividends, can't really control that. You know, you want to get dividends, but they're taxable. You know, same thing with um, anything else that's kind of like this investment stuff. Um, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with, if you're doing any flips, if you're doing any buy and hold, sometimes you really can't determine how much you're going to get. You can do projections, which is always important to do projections. And I would do that at the beginning of the year, just so you have an idea of how much you should be paying and how much you are going to pay. And if there's going to be an overage or a shortfall. And when you sit down, a lot of people are like, oh, I can do that myself. And I'm, when you start making money, you have to level up your squad. So, you know, TurboTax is not going to work for you anymore, you know? So you need to say, okay, I'm going to get myself a CPA. I'm going to get myself a, a EA. I love enrolled agents. Enrolled agents are like my favorite people because they're not ex- as expensive as a CPA, um, typically, but they also have a very good knowledge of the tax code. And they're just not, they're, 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 they can be pricey, but they're usually not as pricey as their counterparts, which are um, attorneys and CPAs. But they have a great knowledge and great working knowledge of the tax code and really can help you save money. Because a lot of the tax planning is not like, oh, how much money am I going to get back a year? But how much money can I save in deductions and making sure that I'm keeping receipts and all those things? Because if you're running a business, you have a lot of um, ordinary and necessary expenses of business that are deductible, but you have to make sure that you're documented. You have to make sure you have the receipt. So you have to keep those. I keep. I try to keep a receipt um, envelope. For, and it's terrible, but I have an envelope for every month. I'm like, okay, you know, last year in April, I went to Chicago and I have my Chicago receipt in the envelope that says April. And then it says Chicago from this date to this date. And I have all my receipts there. So when I go and get my taxes, when I actually sit down with my taxes, I do them. And when I sit down and do my taxes, I'm like, okay, this is what I had this, this I had in April. But you can't do that. You can't try to rustle those up in March when you're trying to see your accountant, you know, in a couple of weeks because it's not yeah. going to work. So a it's just of- about all this planning. This is Ken Morris, the CEO and founder of Multibex, the private equity investment firm and the creator of the brand Lord of My Land, the alpha gentleman entrepreneur. And I am a proud supporter of Tide Capital. You can find me on Instagram at Lord of My Land and at the Lord Ken. This is Charles Ogilvy, also known as Todd Millionaire, host of the Millionaire Podcast, and I'm the founder and the director of the Todd Capital Investment Club that now has over 200 members, Todd Acquisitions, which is our crowdfunded real estate firm, and Todd Ventures, our crowdfunded venture capital firm. I am formally inviting you to join one of our many investment clubs. If you are someone who is new to investing, a seasoned investor, or someone who doesn't even know what investing is, we know that you will learn the key to investing and how to build generational wealth through the use of crowdfunding by working with our team. Email info at capitaltod.com to join today. One of the things that you said that kind of resonated in it, it paralleled something you said in the very beginning is that a lot of times people see the things that wealthy people do and they think they can't do them. But you can, you just do them on a smaller level. And one of those 
is planning your business affairs in line with the tax code. One of the things that they do in this office is at the beginning of the year when they're looking at projects, um, I work for a, a company that builds homes. And so where they're mm -hmm. looking where they're going to build homes or what kind of homes they're going to build or what they're going to put onto those homes. Are they going to put solar? Are they going to build with these types of uh, uh, materials? Are they going to hire these kind of people? All those things help you reduce your tax bill with credits. And so if you qualify yep. for certain credits, then you can reduce your tax liability. So that's one thing. Another thing that you said that I really liked, um, it sounded like you're going there. And it's something I've always said is like, you have these people who are making great money, like you're overqualified for H&R Block. You're overqualified to have your come onto your taxes still. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a blessing. It's like, congratulations, you're doing well. Now level up your team. It's like Jim Morrison always says, it's like, you can't get legal advice from the dude at the barbershop. You got to get legal advice from an attorney if you're going to take your finances and your business serious. So I think that that's huge. And I definitely agree with you there. Um, one other thing that it sounded like what you said, and a lot of people are traveling. And what was so cool is you're able to write off certain things when you travel. And so I don't know that a lot of people know that, but that's kind of like what the wealthy people do. When wealthy people travel, it's a business expense. It's a business event. It's, for, it's traveling for business. And so they can write off that money on their taxes. Um, so can we talk about that? Because you, you said you have a business, you have an LLC. How are you using mm -hmm. your LLC to strategically plan for your taxes? Well, so I have LLC. I started the LLC, Gracious. Oh, so I've had it for about about a year and a half. So when I so the Ivy Investor, like I started as a blog, and I kind of just was writing, and then people were like, "Hey, could you talk?" to us about it. I was like, okay, that's fine. And then they're like, hey, can you talk to us about it in Chicago? I was like, oh. Okay. <laughs> and so what I end up doing is that I'm saying, okay, well, if I'm going to go to Chicago, I'm here for business because I am. I mean, I'm, I'm there to speak. Um, and depends on how I get paid and if I'm getting paid or if it's a nonprofit or whatever, I write off my flight because I had, I'm going there for business. Um, if I'm they're eating like I'm there for business I write off my my meals and it just it's again the, the definition is the ordinary like a necessary expense of the business like mm -hmm. when I'm on a business trip I, I have to eat but you know I'm not going to shake but like that's not a business expense at least for my my line of business I mean that may be for somebody else's but, you know, if I'm, you know, speaking on investments and I'm basically a public speaker shaky bus is not on <laughs> um so I tell people that all the time. It's like, again, because what I've noticed is people were like, I'm taking my kids to Disney and I'm going to, while I'm down there, I'm going to go look at some property. Okay, that's fine. You can do that. But you have to prorate everything. So mm. if you spend like five days down at Disney and you only spend one day um, doing business stuff, you can't write off five days at Disney. No. You can write off one day of, of Disney. And a lot of people, that's where people get off of it. Mm. Um, you have, I have a, you know, I don't have a business space um, outside of my home, but I do have a room that I use for my business. So I have to take the dimensions of my room and I say, okay, that portion of my house, now there's granted, there's some um, what we call safe harbors, um, but I say that portion of my home is for business and that's a business write-off. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So those are the, the things, uh, my cell phone, I, uh, when I use my cell phone, you know, I don't really like sit down and go, okay, this call was for business. You say, okay, you know, I can look at my phone and say, okay, about 25% of this month was, you know, was business related or whatever. So I try to do things that are in line with the that require a little bit of planning. 
knowledge, but that are not going to give me all of it. So a lot of people go super, super left. They're like, I'm going to write off everything. No, you can write off everything. You can. And then when you get all of it, they're going to give all, you're going to give all that money plus interest plus penalty. Mm-hmm. So um, I try to really be careful about what I'm doing. I'm also running through like my friends and like my and when I say my friends, like my account friends, my CPA friends. I'm like, hey, am I doing this right? Because again, I'm a tax attorney, but my specialty is um, a state. So every so often, like I know the code. I'm like, okay, yeah, I know the code. Sometimes you have to check yourself. And again, it's about like leveling up the circle. I have to double check myself sometimes. Like, did I do this right? And sometimes my friends will say, no, you're you're making that up. <laughs> They're like, cite the code. I'm like, oh, I mean, I think that was my interpretation. I read the reg. <laughs> so, um, but again, it's, it's about kind of really understanding what's an ordinary necessary expense of your business and then working from there. But that's how you do that tax planning what's ordinary necessary for me like if I am a ski instructor you know my skis that I'm buying if I'm buying skis every month well that's I'm I'm doing it because it's part of my business mm-hmm. so. very cool I like what you said about leveling up your circle sometimes I think that education helps you level up your circle it's like when you go to law school all your friends are now attorneys you go to grad school all your friends now have an MBA or all your friends have an LLM so it's kind of a hack. A lot of people don't realize that. <laughs> um, That's true. One thing that I heard you talk about on another podcast is you were talking about strategically planning your exit strategy so that you can get the most bang for your buck tax-wise. It's super important to say, okay, you have to begin with the end in mind. You have to say, okay, what am I trying to do with this property? What am I trying to do with this investment? You know, am I going to, am I doing this as a flip? So basically, I'm going to buy it low, I'm going to fix it up, and then I'm going to try to sell it as high as I can. Or am I buying this as a as a kind of like a partial flip? And what I mean by a partial flip is that I'm basically buying a property that I have to do a lot of rehabbing to, but instead of me selling it, I'm actually just bringing it up to market rate and I'm going to rent it for a time. Um, also, you have the opportunity that if you are, um, if you're kind of staying in the real estate game, and this is only in real estate. Um, you have the opportunity to defer your gains. But again, if you're, and what I mean by that, it's called an exchange. And just to kind of make it very simple is that, you know, if I'm going to sell a property, but I'm, I'm still in the real estate game, if I, if I see another property that I'm going to buy, I can actually use those proceeds and buy that property and not um, take on a gain. So if I purchase a property for 100000 I sell it for 200000 so I have a gain of 100000 just to make it really simple. Um, I would normally get taxed, and we'll say it's a long-term capital gain, because you can only do these, these, these two 1031 exchanges if you're holding the property longer than a year. Um, but sometimes it is intent, and that's why you need it, because sometimes it doesn't end up being longer than a year, but the intent was for you to hold it for investment purposes. And that's kind of the crux of, of the, the law. So are you holding it for investment purposes? But you're saying, okay, I have this, I have a capital gain that I'm going to take from the 15% I'm going to have to give the government of my 100000 Or I can use 100000 to buy another property. And then I can defer that gain. So basically it's like tax deferred growth. And I can use that and then kind of flip it some more. And I mean, and some people use these 1031 exchanges ad infinitum. So they just never do anything. So when they die, they're like, okay, I guess we have to take this. We just have to, have to take this game. We just have to take this L. But a lot of people do that. And it's like they're able to kind of level, like we're talking about leveling up. They're able to level up their investment. So they're saying, okay, I have this, you know, single family home and now I'm in a multifamily. You know, I've flipped it. I've 
flipped that, I moved it into a multifamily property. And now I moved it into a, you know, an apartment complex. You know, they can keep doing that um, just to kind of really um, level up and not end up own more and have more assets, but they're not taking those, uh, those taxes. They're not making it a tax thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's super important to know that because those 1031 exchanges require a lot of planning. And before you kind of hit the trigger on the whole process, it's very time intensive. Everything has to be done very quickly. Mm-hmm. So again, you have to know what you're doing when you're doing it and when you're trying to get out of it, because if not, you're going to get kind of hold, hold, caught holding the bag. It's kind of like that, um, the hot potato thing. It's like who gets hold, caught holding the hot potato and you don't want to do it that way. So if you plan to begin with the end in mind, like, okay, my intent for this property is X, my intent for this investment is Y, then you know what you're doing. So when it happens, you also take the emotion out of it. Because I think, especially with the stock market, not so much with real estate, but I have seen this a little bit with real estate, is that people get invest, like get kind of emotionally attached to holding. And they're like, oh, I think, I think Kmart's gonna come up. Uh, that doesn't even make any sense. But you, if you say, listen, you know, I, I've got into this particular investment at $100. And now um, once this investment, if this investment hits $500, I'm getting out. No matter where I am in it, I'm getting out. Because that's what my intent was. My intent was to make $400 in profit. I'm out. No matter what. Because a lot of people kind of hold on and they hold on too long. Yeah. And now granted, I'm not, I'm pretty much a buy and holder. So I pretty much buy and hold everything. But every so often I will go into an investment with the sole purpose of making a profit and getting out. Yeah. Um, if you um, if you remember, I don't know if you remember, it was right before um, before President Obama left office, he um, the Department of Justice made a comment, well, made a statement, said they're getting out of private prisons. They're not using private prisons anymore. And all the private prisons, all the big private prison stocks dropped dramatically. It was like 65% in one day. Basically, it was crazy. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, this is in the private prisons. But if you know anything about private prisons and you know anything about the government relationship to private prisons, is that the major entity that held, that holds private prisons is not the Department of Justice or the DOJ. It's ICE, which is Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement. And Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement didn't say anything. And if you know anything about government kind of press conferences, press releases, if a two um, agencies are doing the same thing the same way, they normally will take um, a make a joint statement in this case there was no joint statement i was like oh well i know enough to know ice is not doing anything so this is kind of like an artificial drop now i don't believe in um i don't believe in private prisons so i knew i was getting out but i was like oh now i'm gonna make this quick money and i did so i doubled my money in like three months so did you short it or did you just buy the bottom oh i went long i went okay. long nice um so I went long and it's not again because it wasn't like oh yes I I, uh, I just know that, that I can make that I know what I'm doing but again I said I once I make this profit because um, I just wanted it to return to its regular level whenever that was going to be and once I made that profit I was out and in, in this, this case it was <laughs> it was a very very short time um, because that's when the election happened but um, again it's like you begin with the end in mind I, I knew once once I hit something that I was going to get out, once I hit a certain price per share, I was out. Same thing with the real estate. If I say, okay, I know if I'm going to, um, if I can make this XYZ profit, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get out. I'm going to sell. Um, but a lot of people are just like, oh, no, I think I can get more. I think I can get more. And then they end up losing the deal. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think that, sometimes you can hold it too long. Yeah, mm-hmm. That kind of speaks to what Aisha Selden calls being a disciplined investor. 
And yeah. so you have to kind of stick to your guns. You have to stick to your principles. You have to stick to your plan. So many people that I know that are successful from Aisha to you to, um, <clears throat> I forgot her name, uh, Trader Nine to Five. She says she never trades without a plan. She never invests without a plan. And so that's key. Like you don't ever want to get greedy. You never, you never want to try to overextend or what they say, turn a trade into an investment. So mm -hmm. very good advice. Um, so I had some questions from people on the internet. I promised them I would ask these questions. Sure. So I might be duplicating, but I'm pretty sure we can pull some more out of it. So the first okay. question is, what are three of the top tax decisions slash moves a person can make? I think the top one, we, we've talked about this before, is planning. Is to sit down with a financial, with a account, a EPA, a, a road agent, and planning out your taxes, like planning out, you know, where you are. And I also think that part of that planning and sitting down and sitting with a financial advisor, because again, you know, your, your accountant people are going to know like kind of like what's going in, what's coming out. But your financial advisor should be a person that can tell you, um, you can say to them, hey, I want to retire at age 70, age 65, whatever. They should be able to help you with that plan and they should be able to work with your tax person to kind of make that happen. So sitting down and doing a plan, doing a financial plan and not just and not doing one in isolation, doing it together, like doing it with your team is super, super important um, in terms of taxes. Um, also. And this also depends on where you live. And this is kind of like a little asterisk when it comes to your planning is that you have to plan out, you know, your, your death. And I think that sucks mm. and it's just not fun, but there's, there's two things that are certain in life, which is death and taxes. Um, so they kind of roll hand in hand. Um, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, there's what's called an inheritance tax. So anytime that you convey property, um, well, that, that someone receives, it's actually on the receipt. Someone receives property as a result of someone's death, um, there's this tax associated with that. Their power of attorney, you should do those also when you sit down and do your planning, but also planning what those tax liabilities may look like and finding ways to, to actually deal with them, which is maybe, you know, getting insurance to make sure that you're not having to pull out of your investment or whatever you have to basically satisfy tax liability. So I kind of put like a little asterisk there. So in terms of planning is like the best tax decision that you can make. I've never heard anybody say to plan with your CPA and your financial advisor at the same time. That's that's a bar. I've never heard that. Because I mean, you do need a board of advisors. Man, you know, there's a question um, that I want to ask you because Robert Kiyosaki always makes this point. He always says that um, the tax code is written in a way that it is supposed to influence certain behaviors. Yes, mm -hmm. so. Those behaviors are like um, investing in business ownership and housing and all those things. Um, what are your thoughts on that statement? Oh, that's, that is, that's an, I say that all of the time. Um, the tax code definitely drives business and it definitely incentivizes certain types of behavior. So we talked about like there's a special, there's a lot of things in the tax code that are specifically for real estate. Like that 1031 exchange is only for real estate and they were trying to use it for cryptocurrency in the tax plan, this new tax plan actually put the act on that and basically said, and no uncertain terms, this doesn't apply to anything other than real estate. And then also, um, the tax code incentivizes long-term investing. 
So what that means is that you have short-term capital gains, which is anything less than a year. You have long-term capital gains, which is anything over a year. So if they're incentivizing long-term investing, they're going to give you a better rate if you sell something um, that you held for over a year, which is your long-term capital gain. But if you have short-term capital gains, it's at your ordinary income tax rate. So you're you're end up paying more for, for holding an investment shorter than a year for a short a shorter time period. Mm-hmm. So um, and then also there's a couple of things that are in the tax code that a lot of people don't know. Um, there is an excess profit. Um, kind of like tax that's levied on corporations that basically and granted it's not something that's used quite often but it's definitely something that is that's kept in mind with corporations is that the reason dividends don't happen because the corporation loves its shareholders. It's hmm. just they just don't. It, that's not that's not. I mean, they may. I'm not going not going to put that on them. But it's really run because of the tax code. So if you had the IRS finds or the Treasury, I should say, the, the, the service finds that you that your company is kind of basically courting profits, um, they're going to give you a tax on that of fifteen percent. So so basically, it's incentivizing corporations to push out dividends because remember corporations have two levels of tax they have it on the corporate level which is on the business level but then they also have it on the level of the shareholders because the dividends are taxed and we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier so they're kind of forcing you know the companies to kind of pay their their dividends to their their um pay dividends and if, and if they're not paying dividends they have to have a reason to not pay so if you notice a lot of tech companies don't pay dividends because they always have some kind of R&D like kind of pending that they can kind of say well this money is earmarked for this thing but uh, some other companies don't have that kind of we'll call a luxury to say I can just park on you know ungodly amounts of cash in my business because I have R&D floating around no um, R&D is research development so, or a patent Pending. They, a lot of businesses can't do that, so they're forced to do that. They're forced to push the money out. So that's another thing that kind of the tax code drives a lot of this business. We'll say um, also in terms of the way, um, on the personal level, the way people dispose of their assets. So if I hold, if I have stock, um, I'll just call, call it by name, step up basis. So if I, I'm incentivized as a person to hold something and not distribute it while before I die. So if I get Google, if I purchase Google stock in 2003 at $100 a share, and who knows where it is now, but we'll say $1,100. We'll say if Google's at like $1,000 because it's much like easier. So that $900 gain goes away if I convey it to someone, if, if they get it as a result of my death. So they base, so instead of them getting bases of 100, which means they're going to have a gain of 900, because that's what happens if I give it to them before I die. But after I die, they get the fair market value at the time of my death. And that's their basis. So again, that kind of nine hundred dollars in gain just kind of disappears into the into the ether. So again, it's kind of like this long term investing idea that they're incentivizing. Um, so that's that's another thing. So there's a lot of things that kind of um, that the, that the tax code incentivizes, and I think it's you really do yourself a service a, a disservice by not knowing what those things are because you you might end up kind of making a misstep like i said um like for example with flippers flippers um 
a lot of people are like, oh, that's short-term capital. It's it, it's not. It's and people are like, oh, it's capital gains, but it's like not really because flippers are considered they, the properties that they're flipping are considered inventory, and a lot of people don't realize that. So they're like, oh, if I flip, then I'm going to get this tax result. But if you don't know the pieces kind of of the chess game you might get burned by not understanding. Again, remember the IRS doesn't want you churning stuff like that, which is fine. If you do it, it's okay. But you have to understand that this kind of behavior is not going to be um, looked upon and get this favorable tax uh, treatment. But if you hold properties, you can kind of have them for investment. If you hold them longer than a year, then the IRS is like, okay, fine. We're going to give you a better tax rate. We're going to give you these options of you being able to defer your, your gains. So it kind of, it, it, it once you know what's going on and kind of how these things all work together, you can actually efficiently tax plan in a way that actually keeps more money in your pocket. Absolutely. Through the same activities, just with a different strategy. I have a few exactly. quick questions. Just kind of fire them off to me and then I'll let you kind of uh, tell us where we can find you. The first question is, who is someone that you look up to in business and why? a young lady I, um, I'm actually in a mastermind I'm in a mastermind of tax professionals and it's one of the tax professionals in my group she's maybe like 10 years but she's a CPA she just is doing it and I look to her for ideas I look to her for inspiration um, because she runs her business in a way that I think is very efficient so kind of she's like my my hands on kind of like I can reach out and touch this person kind of person um, but then in terms of like my high level people um i look i like i look at oprah i love what oprah is doing um i just really like her brand i really love uh jay-z because i love like a good comeback story mm-hmm. um so those are people just in terms of the way they do business and the way they run um i had a friend today she was saying that she was going to pivot in her business and she said that she was thinking about closing her doors. And I said, and I said, that's okay. Remember, you know, Hove retired and he came back. <laughs> so I, I used him every so often. And I did like a blog post on four four um, during the summer. But just I use him every so often because I just think he's a really good story of kind of, you know, doing your own thing, kind of running your own race, kind of setting your own pace and trying things and like, okay, this didn't work. Okay, this didn't work. And he also talked about, I love, like, I just loved his conversation before, before because I felt like he was like, listen, you know, I made a lot of mistakes kind of coming up. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that I missed. And I like people who are very transparent. So between Jay-Z and Oprah and then kind of like my friends, my mastermind that I kind of just really look up to, those are the people that in business that I'm, that I'm into. Oh, Simon Sinek is like my other friend in my head. Like he just, you know, he, like his start with why really kind of helped me refocus my business. He also has a book, Leaders Eat Last. Mm-hmm. Um, also a really awesome kind of um, idea I hadn't gotten to. I kind of read the, I was reading like Start With Why and then I kind of got hooked on Simon and I was like, what else did he do? So he's like, those are on my, that book is on my list, but just yeah. him as kind of the way he strategizes. Um, and, um, and I think Steve Jobs, I think Steve Jobs, um, because I did like a, a kind of like a overview of Apple as a company. And I saw how his influence on the company and their strategy really made a huge difference. Hmm. So it kind of just let me, uh, reminded me that strategy is super important. So those are the people that are like my like friends in my head. And then I had my friends on the ground. Dope. What is your favorite book? Oh, favorite book. Um, <laughs> Unlabeled by Mark Neko. Hmm. Never gotten that one before. 
um, it talks about his um, it talks about his brand like um, and how he kind of got into Echo. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks about how he named his company, how he kind of walked through this whole experience about his company, and I just thought it was the dopest thing of really. Like, he's not that much older. So it was kind of like, okay, he's not that much older. But he really took something that he loved. Like, he was uh, uh, airbrushing things. Like, you know, and he kind of took that to the next level. So it was kind of about taking your talent that you're given and actually um, monetizing it. And it's basically doing things that you love. that You wouldn't get, like, you're doing something that you absolutely love and you would, you would do it for free, but actually monetizing it. And I just mm. think, when I think about business, when I think about just, life in general I kind of think about that book I like it that's one of my that is my favorite book for now last question is what does wealth mean to you um wealth means freedom um wealth you know it it means that I can do what I want when I want and I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do in terms of like with my time it's kind of like freedom and availability of having my time to myself like when I work um you know I have to work because I, I don't have money enough money not to work so I have to get to work on time I have to do things um when you have wealth you you're not kind of pushed in that way now there may be other things that you kind of have to do or just kind of should do there's not something that I have to do every day to make sure that like my life's there so that's kind of like that freedom of time cool so where can people find out more about you and your brand well you can find me um, online on my website www.theivyinvestor.com I'm also on Facebook as uh, facebook.com um, the Ivy Investor Instagram the Ivy Investor, Twitter, but I don't see that much, the Ivy Investor. Um, and that's pretty much where I can be found. I'm usually hanging out on Instagram the most. I do a little bit more on Twitter. Um, I will be doing a lot more blog series. Um, a lot of people have been asking kind of like, I need more information about retirement. I need more information about college planning. So I'm kind of going to start doing a lot more series type work. And you know, I do some. I'm doing some webinars. I'm doing a little bit more cryptocurrency conversations because I think it's just a really cool thing. Um, so I'm, I'm doing a little bit more of that too. But that's all going to be on the website. Very cool, awesome. So thank you for coming on the show. Um, I think that we haven't gotten a chance to really talk about tech. So I think you gave people a ton of information. Um, anybody who's looking to invest, um, if you have any questions, I'm sure she's open to you contacting her. So uh, take action yeah. on that. Um, This has been episode number 52. My name is Charles Ogilvy. Thank you all for listening. We're doing great stuff, man. And I want you guys to be a part of it. I want to see you guys taking action, making progress, and then coming back to us and sharing with us what you've done. So feel free to uh, contact us, letting us know that you took something from a a podcast or this podcast in particular. We'd love to talk to you. Um, You can contact contact us at info at capitaltod.com. My name is Charles Ogilvy, also known as Todd Millionaire, signing off.